I'm back. Hello. Hello. How are you doing? I'm so good. Hello again. Been such a long time. Uh, this is a very good quarantine project, I think. It's productive. As long as you're enjoying it, it's a good project. It's been so funny because, like, with this new, like, this latest season, it's like I went in with no actual plan for, for like starting another season. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like it's worked though. I think it has. It's been like this really funny, like organic process of like I, two months ago, I really thought that I wasn't going to start doing these again. And it just kind of, you know, with these uh, situational circumstances, it ended up being a really good time to get back into it. So. Yeah, and I, yeah, I followed the Twitter. I didn't realize you had a Twitter, so I followed it this week, and it seems like there's a good following there. I was like, ooh, so fancy. <laughs> we, uh, yeah, so we're on Twitter at Down Home Fear, and then I am on Twitter at HH Keegan. Um, I think I follow that. I know I follow that one. Yeah, me, me and you are on that one. Which is cool. I, I followed your last known images on Spotify. Too. I was <laughs> oh, like, wow, oh, thank you. Man, existed. that's huge. Yeah, yeah man. Those Spotify followers are like, what's up? Because that really, um, that helps us get on to those algorithmic playlists that Spotify automatically creates. And that helps oh. us get our weird experimental music, our ambient metal type stuff out there. So that's, that's killer. It. Thank you. I feel like next, like, you should try to make a TikTok dance. That's what all the kids are doing. That's how the music gets out there. My You're brother like has been talking to me so much about that um, Takashi 6 9 dude. Yeah, that, dude, that dude's weird. He is. Yeah, man. But he's all up on that, like, SoundCloud, like, young people marketing directly yeah. to, like, high school student type thing. And maybe yeah. that's what we should do for Down Home Fear. Like... <laughs> Just market directly to the young people. This is a hip podcast for tweens. Like, <laughs> what is that meme where he's like, "What's up, my fellow teenagers?" Oh yeah, that's Steve Buscemi meme. Yeah. yeah, love it. And we are getting old as fuck, so it does. Like, I have to keep reminding oh. myself that I'm almost thirty. So. Oh my god, don't say it that way. Don't say it that way. Oh, man. Okay, well, thank you so much for coming yeah, back. Um, let's get this shit popping off. Um, joined today by Amy, who I was able to basically call earlier this afternoon. She was taking a nap. Classic. And so <laughs> texted me back like three hours later and uh, was willing to actually come on and listen to me uh, present a couple of stories of my own um, because I do have this uh, episode that I alluded to a few weeks ago, um, which is about some sketchy uh, military uh, stuff from the 1950s. We'll just get into that. Um, let me start by asking how your day is going and how much true crime is currently influencing your life. Uh, I mean, I took a nap, so not not complaining. Quarantine has been a little weird. I mean, what I think we were only, we were less than a month in last time we did this, and right. now we're on month three yeah which, yeah so that's it, it's a little weird true crime is good i've actually taken a step back I, I have a number of podcasts that i like to listen to in the true crime genre and i have taken a little bit of a break from it just because i feel like life is uh kind of in like a weird spot right now overall <laughs> and i just was like i i don't 
I don't want to listen to this stuff right now. So it's been a little bit of a break. My mom has been trying to watch, uh, you know, she's not into true crime at all, but she recorded something for me about the Atlanta uh, child killer. Um, What? Okay. Yeah. And she was like, we should watch this together. And I was like, all right. So I have not seen it with her, but she is, uh, she's pushing for it. So maybe she'll get on the true, true crime train. Is that the one that's, like, a, it's not just, like, one missing person's case. It's, like, apparently, like, a shitload of kids in Georgia, like, just went missing, like, in Atlanta Yeah, so it's something. actually a very interesting case overall. I'm shocked you haven't done it on this show. Cause I know. It's such a classic. Over Like, I, there are a lot of podcasts. There's, I, I listened to a podcast a few months ago that was entirely dedicated to this. <laughs> but short story is basically, yeah, this, it's a a number of children, black children went missing or, and were murdered in Atlanta in the 1970s. Um, and mm. they narrowed it down. They thought it was one person who was doing it, but that's where that is the origin of the it's 10 PM. Do you know where your children are? Oh. Cause they would say that on the news and it, it had a huge oh. impact throughout the community, throughout the country. Um, definitely an interesting case for you to look into for any of the listeners who haven't heard about it. Highly yeah. would recommend, uh, looking into it cause it, it's very, uh, insane i don't know yeah it sounds super scary um i was reading a little bit have you heard of uh the texas killing fields no um but look at me about to drop some not look at us just dropping knowledge on each other today um it's a day for learning it is a good day for learning and um to clarify amy and i are on zoom we are still quarantining so, um, the quarantine queens, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Um, so moving on, <laughs> no, like, so basically, the Texas Killing Fields is like the or are, I guess, this um, pretty popular, uh, unresolved mystery. I see it a lot on Reddit on r slash unresolved mysteries. I like that to sub. Say, yeah, it's actually a really good sub. I, I really have enjoyed that. I've been following that sub for probably at least five years. And it, yeah, I've gotten like some really good stories uh, for this show. And also just to expand my own knowledge base. Like there's yeah. some crazy shit out. Anyway, but so the Texas Killing Fields, like there, there is arguably a large number of women who have been discovered there in kind of this... Um, it's not, it's like suburban, I guess, but it's this weird rural area between like Houston and Galveston, Texas. And so it's like this weird, like 50 ish mile stretch where um, there's a small town. Do you know the name of the town? I can't, I don't remember the name of the specific town. Okay, because I think I might know this by a different name, or unfortunately, there are enough of these occurrences where it could be multiple, but sorry, continue. Well, yeah, no, I mean, basically all I was going to say about it, because I don't want to get too sidetracked, but um, it's claimed that like 30 plus bodies have been found in this very small area outside of this small town between Galveston and Houston. So basically, um, you know, it's been said that since the early 70s, they've found like a shitload of... (laughs) (laughs) So, so, you know, to use a a word, like a shitload of like dead teenage girls and like 20 year old women. And it's believed that it's the work of like a single perpetrator. But then as I was reading into it, because I was researching it for this show, 
Um, I realized that the actual like locations that the bodies have been found in, based off of what I've read, they're not actually all based in this small location. They're not like all based in this like community area. Um, there's bodies that show up on these Wikipedia articles, but then if yeah. you start reading the actual sources, it's like, oh, this person disappeared from like Baton Rouge. And for some reason they're showing up on like these lists of oh, victims. Of it. Yeah, yeah. so it's like weird and confusing and I'm sure there's an explanation for it, but it was just turning into one of those things where I was like, this is just too much of a can of worms right now. So yeah. maybe we'll get to that later. But for right now, I do have a story. All well, right. I actually have several stories okay. from Georgia, of all places. Okay. All you, know, right. you know, speaking of Georgia. Let me just kind of take it from the top, I guess. And uh, would love to hear your thoughts as I go through this. If you have any reactions, any commentary, please yeah. chime in. So we, uh, we talk about this phrase that I've used this season, which is nature is not good or evil, nature just is. But from the dawn of time, humans have harnessed nature for their own purposes, building fires, growing crops, domesticating animals, but also creating biological weapons to spread and destroy enemies. And I've been thinking to myself over the last couple of months, you know, it looks like America isn't really well equipped to handle widespread disease. And um, especially, you know, what would happen if a biological weapon had been detonated over a large urban area? What if hundreds of thousands or even millions of people were infected literally overnight with a virulent and unknown pathogen created with the express purpose of destabilizing regions and inciting death and chaos? Um, so that's something that's been on my mind lately, um, and biological warfare is what, um, you know, consists of that, you know, this is the actual intentional use of biological diseases, chemicals, whatever, yeah. as weapons. So it sounds kind of futuristic, but it's been around since, like, basically forever. There's all these historical examples, for example, we've you know, I think we've all seen the image or heard about uh, catapults throwing like dead bodies over the walls of castles to, you know, infect the villagers and everything. It's a real so, throwback. Yeah, no, like, so back like through like medieval times and even earlier than that, all the way back to like 3000 BC, there's documented instances of people using, uh, for example, and we'll definitely get into this later, but um, using insects to like destroy the fields of crops in like neighboring states or mm. towns or cities or whatever. So it's, it's pretty interesting. And so it's rooted in all this rudimentary stuff. And it's not just, you know, medieval times. It extends from that into the modern era. And biological warfare is also some, sometimes called bio-warfare or germ warfare. Um, often the term biological weapon gets used interchangeably with the term bioweapon or germ weapon. So I'm going to be using all of those terms interchangeably. Just bear with me because I was like, just as I was writing this, I was like, man, I'm going to get all of these mixed up. 
So I should just say up front that we're going to use them interchangeably. All one, yeah. And they do all mean like essentially the same thing. Um, there's a distinction that we'll get into in a few minutes, but um, building off of these different historical examples, I mean, we have them used in the world wars and World War II, the Japanese army, um, infamously utilized biological warfare by intentionally poisoning wells in China by infecting them with cholera so they could examine the impact of typhus outbreaks on civilian and military populations uh, in China. So this is just one example of a war crime that has been committed using uh, biological weapons. The United States is not innocent of this either. Um, In the years following World War II, it was rumored that the U.S. had provided the United Kingdom with a supply of invasive Colorado potato beetles who devastated crops in Eastern Europe and Russia in attempts to uh, potentially destabilize their economies. That's a rumor, but we are going to get into some confirmed cases of the U.S. also using biological weapons. So throughout, and of course, uh, did I just say this, that the U.S. denied these claims? (laughs) Oh, no. Okay. So the U.S. denied the Colorado potato beetle infestation, but this this is a rumor that's uh, been floating around for many, many years now. Throughout the Cold War, the Soviets had been developing and stockpiling things like anthrax, smallpox, drug-resistant bacteria weapons, um, all of which could be used in intercontinental ballistic missiles, ICBMs. But it was always understood by these global superpowers, the United States, Russia, etc., all the major players back during the Cold War, that essentially biological warfare is super dangerous, in some ways perhaps even more dangerous than nuclear warfare, which sounds like a crazy statement. But the reason it's so dangerous is because it can't be controlled. It's not like an isolated area of effect that can be somewhat contained or, you know, responded to. And it spreads very, very stealthily. It's literally like what we're having happen right now. Yeah, exactly. Exploding in certain areas that, you know... uh different responses are happening and there's just no way to control it. I'm on board. I totally understand what you're saying. Yeah. So it's really crazy stuff. It's really, really damaging and it really can't be trusted in the hands of anyone. Uh, Another key problem with bioweapons is they're usually pretty cheap to create. Like they're not difficult to develop. You can actually, I read on uh, the FBI's website that they estimate that you can create anthrax like in your backyard for less than three thousand dollars. Why is that on their website? I don't. <laughs> Why are they telling people that? I was kind of wondering the same thing. I was like, do we want people to know about this? But the FBI put it out there, not me. So I was like, I might as well just share this on my fucking podcast. Pass it along. <laughs> so there. So the point is, bioweapons are considered weapons of mass destruction, and. In the early 1970s, there was a convention called the Biological Weapons Convention of 1972, wherein the USA and the USSR reached an agreement to ban biological weapons, not just, being, uh, not just from being stockpiled, but from being developed at all. And by 2019, 183 countries from around the world have also agreed to this treaty, despite that there's been these developments and these improvements and people are kind of, you know, understanding the ethical implications of these types of weapons. 
the U.S. Department of Defense maintains a little bit more of an ambiguous stance on these types of items. Why not see, for example, if mosquitoes could be infected with a biological agent and then dropped from aircraft to descend on communities and riddle unsuspecting foes with disease? These are the types of things that the Department of Defense, the DOD, and, you know, of course, the American military have been working on since pretty much the early 1900s, like since they started having better scientific understandings of genetics and biology and chemistry and things like this, it kind of came together by the 1940s to create super sketchy stuff. Yeah, that's pretty horrific. The perceived advantage of these types of weapons is that it keeps soldiers safe from having to actually drop into hostile areas. And like I was saying earlier, there's the the added benefit of being incredibly difficult to detect, not just that it's there, but where it came from, if it was a naturally occurring disease, or if it was indeed caused by man, which is, you know, one of the rumors that's currently speculating about coronavirus. Well, I I read today, it's like 60 countries are petitioning the WHO to investigate, like the circumstances of where this came from. So we'll see what comes of that, I suppose. I don't know. There's, there's been a lot of conspiracy theories floating around about it. Yeah. It's a whole other thing. Yeah. It, yeah. But I mean, it is, I mean, that's like case in point though of just why these are so potentially damaging. I mean, it's so unclear. There's, you know, the methods of transmission are not always understood, blah, blah, blah. When we're thinking about how much COVID-19 or coronavirus has disrupted our world currently, I mean, that's when we're all more or less working together to prevent the spread by quarantining and by being aware of the spread of this disease. Imagine if a country were trying to intentionally proliferate disease throughout an enemy nation. Think about how fast that kind of direct effort (laughs) you know that it would be a big problem yeah absolutely let me take you to a place called horn island this is our first story and as far as the presence of biological warfare in the american south you would probably think to yourself well that sounds like something that would never be tested anywhere close to any sort of, you know, area where anyone is, you know, military bases or civilian towns or whatever. But as I was kind of researching these different bioweapon topics, kind of as the result of my own paranoia and neuroticism, I found that there were a few different pretty interesting cases, such as Horn Island. Now, before the full implications of bioweapons were understood. They were extremely appealing conceptually to militaries across the globe for the reasons that we've been discussing. The United States actually was even testing biological and entomological weapons on its own citizens for a while. Oh, okay. (laughs) So that's cool. (laughs) But so here's the thing. So this is the distinction um, that I wanted to talk about. So entomological weapons are a type of bioweapon. They're a subcategory. And what it means is that you're using insects to spread disease throughout areas. You use them as a disease carrier. For many years, the United States was conducting these very secretive 
types of research and exercises in the Deep South, in the United States, back in the 1940s and 1950s. Um, possibly outside of that, for these stories, these are specifically from uh, the 1950s and the years immediately following World War II. In 1943, there was some pretty intense shit going down in the world. <laughs> I like that that's the uh, intro. <laughs> that's, the, uh, that's the best segue that I have. I mean, World War II was like in full swing raging on yeah raging i mean there's the holocaust there's literally i mean traditional warfare unconventional warfare the use of all these different technologies and i mean it was a dark state of affairs so the world is experiencing all these unprecedented levels of human suffering and uh, we're all at that time looking for a way to end the war very, very quickly, which of course escalated to the Manhattan Project and the use of nuclear weapons on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But that wasn't the only potential quote unquote solution okay. looked into to end the war quickly. So you have things like the Manhattan Project, and then you have these lesser known projects where the DOD was looking in to um, biological weapons. There is a running dynamic beneath all of this, which is essentially the contrast between lofty theoretical visions and really smart stuff versus, hey nerds, chill the fuck out and exercise some discretion with how you actually want to test this bullshit. Like seriously, so you've you've got all these super smart guys like working in laboratories and doing all this research and basically finding new ways to kill things. And, you know, maybe we should just kind of set a bar Let's somewhere. Tone it down, yeah. <laughs> tone, tone it, it down, down a little bit. A little bit, yeah. So Horn Island is an example of this, and it's the first key topic that I wanted to discuss. So Horn Island is located just off the coast of Mississippi. It's in the Gulf of Mexico, about halfway between New Orleans and Mobile, Alabama. It's a narrow barrier island, similar to the ones off the Outer Banks of North Carolina that we've talked about a couple of times this season. I don't know why that keeps coming up, um, but barrier islands We are, just really like islands here. I don't know, specifically barrier islands. We're very into tropical, chill beach scenes, I guess. So with this particular barrier island, it's isolated, but it's not really that isolated. Even back in the early to mid-1900s, when the southern United States was much more rural than it is in 2020, you can still easily see the mainland from the coast of this island. It's just 10 minutes out into the Gulf, so oh, it's, okay. it's not out in the middle of nowhere. And not just is it located 10 miles offshore, it's located close to major urban areas, including Mobile, Alabama, and of course, New Orleans. Yeah. So it's not like this is somewhere in like the North Atlantic in some sort of very obscure area. It's, it's near a lot of areas uh, with high population and high commerce, you know, ships, planes, yeah. traveling back and forth, things like that. In October of 1943, Horn Island was closed to the public and it was officially dubbed the Horn Island Chemical Warfare Service Quarantine Station. Oh my gosh. Even the name is scary. I don't like that. Isn't it? It sounds like something out of a movie, like this like really weird dystopian kind of facility. And they had, so they had closed this island off to the public. There was no one who didn't have authorization was allowed on. They had a lot of 
civilian scientists actually who were working and living at the island um, because again this was supposed to be a cutting edge research facility and in that interest to that end they had a small train track that actually ran the length of the narrow island so they could move supplies back and forth and they could you know work efficiently it also had a state-of-the-art necropsy research facility, which to the lay person such as myself can simply be thought of as flesh rotting facility. I mean, that's what necropsy is. Um, That's pretty gross. Dead and dying and rotting tissue. Great stuff. Another thing that they had on this island was a bunch of farm animals to collect that dope necropsy data. The island itself uh, was about about seven and a half miles long, but that was just the length of the train track that was on there, so it's probably a bit larger. There were around 200 personnel who worked at Horn Island. Uh, Like I said, most of them weren't technically in the military. Most were civilian scientists who had been sent to the location to conduct research on various bioweapons that the military was interested in. The island did contain a movie theater and a cafeteria, but it was overall said to have been quite boring. The scientists were allowed to go back to the mainland every two weeks or so, so they could visit their families who were living on the mainland. And, uh, you know, they just wanted some change of pace from sitting on this barren, boring desert island, effectively. I mean, if you look at photos of this place, it is a narrow, sandy, unremarkable island with a few palm trees on it. It's super boring. And people would kind of just go stir crazy, so they would actually let them you know, go to the mainland. Leave, yeah. Yeah, leave and not be surrounded by decaying cattle and things like that. Great. And until Horn Island closed in July of 1944, there were 23 bioweapon tests on the island. There were a couple of issues with conducting the tests because, as far as I can tell, the most salient issue was that around 70% of prevailing winds at Horn Island directed contaminants back to the mainland, back to the coast where oh everyone my was living. Yeah, so that meant that when the government needed to test things, such as bombs that contained, uh, and I hope I am pronouncing this correctly, botulinum toxins. Botulinum. Bot- botulism? It's botulinum. Oh, okay. And they wanted to see how quickly it could cause respiratory failure in guinea pigs. God. <laughs> so the wind would carry some of these botulinum, botulin toxins. These toxins. <laughs> toxins. They carried the toxins across the water and into the mainland, which potentially could have harmed some people. They don't know yeah. if anyone necessarily had health complications because of this, but it wasn't good. It wasn't great. So they decided uh, in July of 1944 that the facility would be fully shut down. The full extent of the weapons testing at Horn Island is unclear. The U.S. National Park Service, which now owns and operates uh, Horn Island, it's within their jurisdiction of the National Park Service. And they indicate that the center conducted 23 weapons tests, like we said, so 23 is the confirmed number. And one of the weapons agents that was tested was the toxin that we were just discussing. But all of the projects were highly classified, so the results from these studies and what exactly went down, what was successful, what experiments never even got off the ground in the first place, this is all kind of 
unknown by design, right? In the 1940s, most of the people who were living in southern Louisiana, southern Mississippi, southern Alabama, they had no idea that this type of military testing was happening just miles offshore. Like, no yeah. really knew about this except for the government. So to your point, it is very much like this weird, shady kind of situation where there's like a secret testing facility and i mean no one's allowed in the people who are allowed out are like you know cleared trusted people who have special knowledge that they're not allowed to share so i thought it was really interesting to come across this and i mean it's creepy as hell like if they were doing that in the 1950s what are they doing now yeah that was in the, so that was in the mid 1940s too that was oh, 1943 through 1944 so it only operated for about 1 year it was like the fall of 43 through the summer of 44 yeah it wasn't open for a long time but it was just this weird thing and these yeah. days you know, there's nothing left out there. I think I read somewhere that the train track might still be visible in some places. Yeah. But for the most part, you know, it's just a barren little island. People go out there to like camp, like people will row kayaks out to it and just post up and chill, which is really funny. And the good news is that it does get tested periodically for toxins and other contaminants. And I believe I had the date here somewhere. 2013 was the most recent test and no traces of any like toxic bad stuff were found. It is a protected park and people come to camp, they swim, they sail around the narrow islands. There's nice little palm trees. It's kind of chill, I guess. It's better than what it was, I guess. I mean, I'm not super surprised by this because like, you know, there are other examples of them doing shady things in this time period. Like uh, wasn't the 1940s when they were like testing LSD on random citizens without their consent or knowledge? Uh, that was MK Ultra, which was a CIA operation from uh, the late 50s and early 60s, I think. Okay, so this was a little before that. But that is but, the thing. That is a confirmed I mean, thing. That yeah. That's not a conspiracy thing. I know people hear that sometimes and they're like, oh, that's just conspiracy. It's like, no, like these are it's like declassified. Yeah, it's been confirmed that these are things that happen. And it's interesting to me that that's declassified, but this information that's older isn't. And like, I wonder what the, you know, like what qualifies something to be declassified versus not. Yeah. And that's such a good point because I was thinking about that exact same thing. I was like, why do these certain things get released whereas others don't and that's something that i'll get into a little bit more in just a couple of minutes yeah because i was thinking the same thing i was like why does stuff like mk ultra get out because of all the things that you would like again it's like a machiavellian evil government entity you don't want people to know about shit like that i like that you end with evil government okay (laughs) (laughs) i mean Man, uh, this that CIA shit in particular gets fucking crazy, and I strongly recommend that people read into it because that stuff is legit science fiction levels of just crazy interesting and usually really fucked up. I mean, it does sound like a sci-fi thing. Like, it sounds like a, a fictional thing, just like what you were talking about. Like, it isn't a conspiracy theory. It's a confirmed thing. I don't know. So Yeah, yeah. I, I, it, it's like you can't really argue some of these things. Yeah. Other um, conspiracy theories, maybe not so much. But this one, it's confirmed. <laughs> we talk a lot of shit about, like, Canada 
and other nations on here, but rest assured that like we know that the United States is fucked. <laughs> like, like we're we're on board with that. Um, I, so, I feel like you can't say you're on board with it. You could just say you understand. I, no, I'm on board with the point that like America is fucking crazy is what yeah. I mean. I'm not on board with sketchy shit, but I'm saying that I'm not opposed. I'm not like denying. <laughs> okay. You yeah, know? that's fair. That's a fair statement. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like every country's government has probably done something uh, that toes the ethical line. Some more than others. Yeah, I Japan. feel like it's... World War Two. You're just gonna list them out. <laughs> I I can start doing that, but I'm not going to because okay. I don't want to upset people. But yeah, man, no, but it doesn't matter. I mean, like loss of life, sketchy shit. It's sketchy shit. It's not good. It doesn't matter what country is doing it. I would prefer that we don't have toxins potentially impacting civilian populations. I would appreciate yeah. if we could not use these poorly understood weapons of mass destruction to like fuck up uh, <laughs> the world. <laughs> Nations Everything. The yeah, yeah. I, like I'm hoping we never have to live through another thing like we are right now. And like this, in comparison to certain things, uh, doesn't even hit the map, right? So I'm, I, I get I that. Know. Yeah, and, and so in a kind of poetic justice of sorts, uh, in 1946, after it had been closed for about, uh, I don't know, like two years at that point, yeah. Corn Island was temporarily commissioned as a weapon disposal site. Yeah. So the U.S. Army safely destroyed 133 leaking bombs that contained a mustard agent, like oh. mustard gas. Yeah. It had a mustard agent, which is presumably also not good. Um, so they were able to destroy those leaking bombs there, and so I guess Horn Island served somewhat of a positive purpose. That's good. I, yeah. I guess. Okay. Good job, Horn Island. Minor redemption. Let's give everyone the benefit of the doubt, though. World War II was in full swing. We had to stop the Nazis. We had to protect our country from Japanese attacks. The scientists working at Horn Island were trying to find the fastest and least catastrophic way to end the war, which, again, ended up being ended by weapons of mass destruction anyway. So there's a lot of different factors involved here. The ethical compass is kind of a gray area. Can we say that much? I think a gray area is fine. Like the, the ethical, uh, like you obviously in wartime, you have to weigh the ethics. So we'll, we'll be generous and call it a gray area. <laughs> okay. And it is kind of like they were trying to determine what the best options were. And again, it was never confirmed that anyone had gotten sick or died from the secretive bioweapons tested at Horn Islands. And the government would have done anything that they knew would have put communities at risk of anything, right? I mean, you got to keep your own communities safe. But like I you were just do saying, not believe that. I don't believe <laughs> exactly. <that. laughs> so to Amy's point from earlier, there are things like MKUltra that happen on American soil. And um, on that note, let's fast forward just a few years from the mid 1940s to the mid 1950s. 
where it turns out even in times of relative peace, our government will try to reduce costs and cut corners by saying, fuck it, and circumventing any sort of ethical process or prudent procedures in order to get shit done and keep the world at bay efficiently. <laughs> fuck it. I like the way you said it. In the intro to this episode, I mentioned that the United States was rumored to have used Colorado potato beetles to destroy crops in Russia during the years following World War II. Using bugs to disrupt an enemy's infrastructure is actually one of the earliest forms of bio-warfare. I said in the intro that it had been documented since medieval times with um, actual entomological warfare, insect warfare. Yeah. Um, And during the 1950s, finding advanced technology to secretly disrupt foreign nations such as North Korea, Eastern Europe, Vietnam, Iran, slash Iran, depending on how you want to pronounce it, that was all the rage in terms of what the Department of Defense was interested in. The world had been forever changed by the leaps and bounds in science and technology during World War II, and it was up to the United States and the Soviet Union to figure out how are we going to have the best technology to keep the other side from fucking our shit up. And with all of this technology, all these cutting edge state of the art methods of conducting warfare and surveillance and increasing national security, there was a more reductionist approach that was considered. Mosquitoes are a parasitic insect that we're probably all familiar with. What better pest to place into a bomb and drop over an enemy region than a mosquito? During the 1950s, a number of secret operations were conducted to gauge the feasibility of using mosquitoes to spread yellow fever and other such plagues to foreign adversaries. The goal was to drop swarms of infected mosquitoes to to proliferate hostile regions and weaken resistance before deploying traditional ground troops and weapons to an area. That's so messed up. I think it's pretty dope. No, I'm joking. <laughs> I think, yeah, and we'll get it with, dude, man, you're, uh, you're going to love where this goes if that was okay. upsetting to you. Oh, okay. <laughs> so the military decided that the best testing ground for this concept was a highly secretive and isolated region. Just kidding. It was over the state of Georgia again, and this time it included highly populated areas such as the city of Savannah. So this time they're not even trying to like isolate shit. They're just like, whatever, fuck it, drop them, see what happens. What did Georgia do to the government, the federal government that pissed them off this much? I think that it has to do with just the ruralness of this area. Because remember what we were talking about like literally years ago with those nuclear weapons that yeah. they were transporting around there? And this stuff with uh, these lost nuclear weapons, which I think was from episode eight, if I'm remembering correctly, and things like this with this uh, testing of mosquito weapons, Mm -hmm. of bioweapons, the South was a lot different back then than Mm -hmm. it is now. But even at the time, Savannah, Georgia had a population of like 130,000 or so. So you're not talking about sizable. I know. Yeah, it's like it's like not. It's like a small city. It yeah. is a small city, right? Yeah, yeah. So That's nuts. Yeah, no, it's it's really crazy. And so they called this first operation one of many. 
Operation Big Buzz, and it was a weapons test conducted by the military in May of 1955. It consisted of dropping 330,000 mosquitoes, and they were just regular mosquitoes. They weren't the disease, they didn't like infect these with yellow fever and unleash them on mm-hmm. Savannah. It wasn't that crazy. Thank God. But they did drop hundreds of thousands of mosquitoes in these bombs, which were um, basically cardboard containers that they would drop out of these planes, and the containers were full of tubes that contained all of these mosquitoes. And so the bomb would fall, it would open in the sky above whatever the target was, and then all these mosquitoes would like fly down from the heavens and infest whatever the area was. And the conclusions of Operation Big Buzz were that one, mosquitoes absolutely could survive being dropped from cardboard bombs near an area and then go on to infest the region. And two, the mosquitoes did feed on some of the Savannah residents after they were dropped from the bombs. How did they know that? I don't know exactly. Did they set up a poll where they're like, hey, were you bitten by a mosquito this week? I, it sounds crazy, but I think it was actually something like that. Because <laughs> the, one of the things that they did is uh, <laughs> guinea pigs also get a, a really bad go of things, I guess, because they did have guinea pigs that they had placed around Savannah, and they they were studying those so they could confirm that the mosquitoes actually got there, but then they uh, also, you know, the guinea pigs, as well as the people, also got bitten. Huh. So they, they had determined this through some sort of, I guess, self-report process from, from the citizens of Savannah. The operation was kept highly classified, and it was used as a reference point later in the 1980s when interest in bioweapons and entomological weapons and their offensive and defensive applications temporarily came back in vogue within the DOD. It wasn't until the mid-1990s that partially declassified reports of Operation Big Buzz were revealed to the public. So there was this inquiry in the 1980s to find out, well, what would happen, hypothetically, if a bioweapon was to be detonated within any urban area? So they're not just like necessarily looking at it just to figure out how effective of a weapon it would be. They were also looking at it to figure out how to like defend against them if they were. That makes sense, yeah. So, but clearly they like didn't figure anything out because here we are 40 years later and you know, like we're, our shit is still fucked trying to respond to a natural disease. <clears throat> anyway, we did get partially declassified reports of Operation Big Buzz, and it's largely from the context of this inquiry from the 1980s. So you're talking about hmm. at least 40 years of separation from the 1950s through when the documents were declassified in the 1990s. And those documents that were declassified were actually from the 1980s. So it wasn't like... <laughs> Do you see what I'm saying, though? Yeah, in no, there's of, a lot of hoops to jump through. There's, yeah, there's just moving pieces it's it's weird and i was reading through the declassified document and it's like less than 15 pages and there's a bunch of paragraphs that are redacted redacted yeah it's all it's not totally clear exactly what went down even with this partial information that we have great (laughs) less than a year after operation big buzz in april of 1956 the u.s military used savannah georgia again as a testing ground for entomological bioweapons 
This time, the goal was to conduct a detailed examination of how mosquitoes might be able to spread disease, this time if they were released from the ground. Instead of being dropped from bombs, they would just like open a box and let them go and right. see what happened. Operation May Day was the name given to this series of tests, and it lasted from April 1956 to November. Operation Dropkick was a related operation that ran from the, for roughly the same period of time. As I was researching these two different operations, there seems to be a lot of overlap. I don't know if they may technically have been executed or implemented yeah. by like different branches of the military or something, but they were in the same area during the same time frame. Testing the same things. <laughs> so, I feel like that would mess up the tests, right? Like, Yeah, it could. It, it definitely could. And I was like, so that's why I was thinking to myself, I was like, these had to have been interconnected. They had to be yeah, like, like complementary yeah. programs of some kind. When you were saying earlier, how did they test the number of people who were being bitten by these mosquitoes? This is what the government says. They say that the civilian populations within the areas of Savannah that they were releasing these mosquitoes, they defined those civilian populations as cooperative residential regions, which implies that the residents were informed of the tests and agreed to them. But that makes no sense to me. Yeah, would you, would you be like, oh yeah, bring all those mosquitoes into my neighborhood, test me out. No, like I don't know anybody who would want that. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. And can you imagine if you had like young kids, like you're going to let the government drop crazy insects onto your household? Like, no, I strongly do not believe that informed consent was part of this, especially given that back in those days, ethical science stuff in general was not really at the same level that it is now. Because I can tell you straight up, if you were to run that by like an internal review board, like an IRB, that's yeah. what they are, right? Internal review board? Uh, yeah, it's, there's another name for it. But yeah. Right. International IRBs. review board. Whatever. It's whatever the thing that actual people with PhDs do when they want to publish research. Yeah. And it's called the IRB. And one of the things that you have to do drawing off of my psychology knowledge from college. So like where I did work in research labs and stuff, so I do know a little bit about this, but it's been a while. But the point of the IRB is basically to make sure that there isn't like whack unethical stuff happening in research studies. And so one of the things that they're going to always ask is, does anyone get harmed by the type of research that you're conducting? And if the answer is yes, then there has to be extensive analysis of exactly what's occurring, what the type of danger is, what it's for, if the people involved in the experiment know about it and they understand. So it's all these different layers to it. And we have these things in place now to protect us from like sketchy government experiments like MKUltra and like other things. But in those days, in the 1950s, that wasn't as big of a factor. So Operation Mayday and Operation Dropkick were, again, to test the implications of yellow fever-infected mosquitoes and and using them as a weapon. One of the results from Operation Big Buzz that Operation Mayday and Operation Dropkick were building off of was that 
the mosquitoes had to be dropped so close to their intended targets that staging an attack on a fortified military location would be unfeasible. Mm. So they already knew this. They already had evidence saying, well, yeah, mosquitoes work, but how are you going to get them close enough to a target without like your plane getting shot down or without the bombs getting uh, shot down? Yeah. You know, how are you actually going to practically make it happen? Make it happen. Yeah. And that's why, to me, when we were talking about the official version of events versus the actual reasons behind events, this is one of the things that raised a red flag for me. We already know that it's not a useful weapon for military targets. Ergo, the reports from Operation Mayday and Operation Dropkick are a lot more extensive than the ones for Operation Big Buzz. And there are original... um, sources for these studies that were um that 1981 report that we were talking about that discussed operation big buzz and that was missing all these different pieces of information one of the things that wasn't redacted is that the dossier i guess if you will contained a line saying a covert attack on a military unit would be very difficult to achieve Entomological warfare could be very effectively used against civilian urban populations, or it could be used to cause great economic losses in the cattle and livestock industry. So by the late 1950s, they're no longer looking into this stuff as, you know, well, what if someone did this to us? It's very much like, okay, well, what if we just like unleashed this shit on like a village in Southeast Asia? Yeah, that's pretty horrific. Yeah, it's like it is pretty pretty horrific. I'd say it's pretty unethical to specifically be looking into things to use against innocent civilians. But again, this is just how the DoD rolls. Hopefully, and, past tense. Hopefully, how they rolled. Yeah, but it's probably I mean basically the same now. I, I mean, if I'm being completely cynical, what I just quoted is a direct quote from page fifty nine of an evaluation of entomological warfare as a potential danger to the United States and European NATO nations. So that's the name of the document that was created to uh, discuss the different findings from these operations. Another thing to note about these tests is that they didn't just use any mosquitoes for them. They used a type of mosquito which had a scientific name of Aedes aegypti, which I'm probably also mispronouncing. But basically what it means is it's the yellow fever mosquito. It's the type of mosquito that specifically carries not just yellow fever, but a variety of other highly infectious diseases. It can be equipped with these different types of diseases and it can spread them to other people. And there was another report titled Summary of Major Events and Problems that was created by the U.S. Army Chemical Corps in 1959. And it directly states, the mosquito favors this specific species of mosquito, favors human habitations as breeding places. It sucks blood from animals, but seems to prefer humans. And yellow fever is no joke. It's not like the common cold. In fact, after being infected with yellow fever, the disease is fatal in about one third of patients. And death usually occurs within seven days. If you recover from the disease, the recovery process can take weeks or even months. And even in 2020, there is no known cure for yellow fever. Hmm. So this is like no joke. Like, yeah, of course. You know, this isn't like a casual 
like, let's see, you know, maybe it'll uh, destabilize the economy. It's like, no, nah, this is going to, like, kill a shitload of people if we Extremely actually... Extremely deadly, yeah. <laughs> they're not <laughs> messing around here. They're really not. They're, they're really, really not. That same report goes on to outline the military advantages of entomological warfare slash bioweapons using that specific species of mosquitoes, emphasizing the clandestine nature of potential yellow fever mosquito attacks. The advantages, of course, including that if a region already had naturally occurring mosquitoes, it would be difficult or impossible for an enemy nation to identify the source of the infected mosquitoes. And part of the reason for that, yellow fever's onset usually doesn't occur until about 48 hours after someone is infected. And by the time a population realizes that it's infected with the disease, the mosquitoes had already been spreading throughout the communities for days. Hmm. What do you think about that? I mean... Sounds familiar. Yeah, and I was kind of looking into that. I was like, what? So, what if there was like a yellow fever plague, or, you know, how as coronavirus continues to play out, like, what will the end, if it happens, what will the end of that look like? And I was looking at these different historical plagues and, you know, things like that. And basically, it was like the way these plagues end is through people quarantining or it's through everyone dies. Like those were the the bubonic plague, the Black Death. Apparently the reason that slowed down and kind of died out is because the people who weren't sick quarantined. So the people who were sick like died and then that raised the overall level of like herd immunity in the surviving populations. And like, Mm -hmm. so it just all kind of balances out. And that's that's what they're trying, like that's what certain folks are trying trying to fight for now where it's like let's not quarantine and just go for herd immunity which is people battle it out yeah it's a um not the tactic i personally would prefer i like that (laughs) vaccine route i like everybody living you know yeah but yeah it, it i feel like looking to the past and seeing how that kind of stuff plays out is really interesting in the context of our current situation. Yeah, and the other thing, I mean, uh, this, I mean, it's like, what else can you say about this bullshit at this point? But it really is unlike any other disease of this nature that's happened because, I mean, the, the last kind of benchmark that I can think of is the uh, Spanish flu from 1918. Yeah. And that was before modern medical stuff before mass media before all these other factors that are now currently involved yeah so yeah man i mean that's why this kind of stuff has been on my mind lately because i was thinking like what so like this is just allegedly as far as we know a naturally occurring thing so again what if it was an intentional thing that had like orchestrated intelligent forces behind it figuring out ways to disseminate this type of infection throughout a population it's horrifying and it just goes to show why these types of weapons are no longer allowed. They're internationally banned from being created, from being stockpiled, because they really are that fucking dangerous. I would even go further to say we should not have nuclear weapons stockpiled or in current development, but clearly the ship on that has failed. (laughs) (laughs) You you just need to go and talk to all your uh, international leader friends directly. Just... <laughs> Don't just have a casual chat.
to wrap everything up here, the spread of such diseases cannot be controlled once they are unleashed. It's really left up to the forces of nature to decide how the plagues will ultimately end. And bioweapons aren't limited to insects or fungi. Like we were saying earlier, anthrax is an example of a biological weapon that's fairly easy and inex inexpensive to make. And bioweapons are potential weapons of mass destruction. That's why the Biological Weapons Convention of 1972 recognized the grave implications of such warfare and internationally banned their development. Bioweapons are highly desirable to terrorist or other guerrilla combatants because they are generally cheap, hard to trace, and highly destructive. That's why every few years when we hear of a country attempting to produce bioweapons, there's usually multilateral military interventions to destroy the manufacturing facilities or stockpiles. Between the two declassified reports that I mentioned earlier, I recommend the Summary of Major Events and Problems report created by the U.S. Army Chemical Corps in 1959. It is much, much lengthier than the report from 1981. That's the report that discussed Operation Big Buzz, the first operation of uh, that was conducted in Savannah. Um, the summary of major events and problems report is a lot more interesting because I think that it seems like a more transparent explanation of the testing and why they were interested in it. There is not like a kind of sugar-coated way of describing it. Like in that 1981 partially declassified report, if you're reading between the lines you're like, oh, okay, if I was like a general and someone handed this to me, I wouldn't just be looking at, well, what happened if I got hit with this? It would be set, like, what if we were to utilize this for our own purposes? So yeah. I think there's kind of that subtext there yeah. in the 1981 report. But in this other report from 1959, it's like they're straight up like, yo, like, this would be great at, like, fucking up with, like, a neighborhood. Like... <laughs> That's so scary. It is, but it's interesting to read. And, I mean, definitely. And so that report is like over 60 pages long. There's a, there's stuff in that report that is redacted. It's not the complete document, but there's mm -hmm. a lot more to go off of there. And I find it I find it really interesting. And that's available online. If you just Google that, it'll come yeah. up. If you're on Wikipedia, you can probably find it that way too. Um, super interesting stuff. I like to try to find original source material for this show when I can. Yeah. So I, I liked being able to find that. It makes it more interesting. Plus, we learned from the that the FBI is just advertising how expensive it is to make <laughs> lethal weapons. So that's casual. I think they're just saying that like it is a problem that we should be aware of, but not to look into it. I mean, that's fair. <laughs> that's fair. I don't know. There, I think we talked about this at one point, but there was that stupid, like, well, it, like there was a book that came out that taught kids how to do stupid things. You know, oh, you, the Anarchist Cookbook. Yeah. I remember that. So I'm sure 12. that falls. Yeah, it was like something that got spread around on the internet. And I'm sure pre-internet like i don't know when it was written that was but one it, of those like og like school shooter texts that like really got people really concerned about the intersection of uh, basically the internet with fucked up kids figuring out how to like, make bombs yeah it, it yeah. was called the anarchist cookbook when i was like in middle school the little edgy kids were all 
pretty into that just because it was like I wasn't friends with terrorists or anything. People yeah, let's like, this. But it, it was like a when you're a dumb kid, you like go and they look like not no because yeah, it's like subversive preteens that we're trying to uh, market to right now. But <laughs> <laughs> if but you're like, a tween no. listening to this episode, please don't try to make anthrax. We yeah. do not. We're not I feel like you're that. gonna have to just take all of this out on <laughs> <laughs> this it's entire like, episode. Is not classified. <laughs> yeah, rejected. Uh, but no, no. I just like one of those things where I feel like, uh, speaking of what the FBI was putting on their website, it's just like there are all these things floating out there where people might even might get into them, and maybe that's what they're addressing. Hopefully, not too serious. But yeah, it, it's just interesting. But I'm I'm with you. I like when you pull from the source materials. I like. I found I find when I do that for stories on here, it's always more interesting than like cool. Yeah, and I, for these more recent ones, really for the ones that have to do with like people dying, I try to find good sources. I can't yeah. always do that, especially with like you know like that Wolf Girl stuff. A lot. I mean, it's from like the 1830s. No yeah. one, you know, like whatever. But I, stuff that's more recent that I can reasonably find good hard information on, you know. I'll go out of my way to find it. I mean, um, but yeah, man. So that's really all I have for you with this. Do you have any questions or other comments? I mean, I, cause that's the material that, that I have. Commentary wise, like this shit is very scary. I, I think, you know, and I, th- I, I feel like the declassified stuff like this, like the files you were just talking about, the declassified stuff about MK ultra, like that definitely feeds this interest in general conspiracy theories where the government is doing not so cool stuff to citizens, <laughs> um, yeah. to put it mildly. So um, I, it, it does make me wonder, like, all these things that we think are ridiculous conspiracy theories, like, is there any truth to that? Will we find out in 50 years when things are declassified? Like, who yeah. knows? Are it, there aliens at Area 51? I don't know. Definitely, uh, yes. Definitely, maybe. Uh, but I, I don't know, like, question-wise, were, did you find any other uh, examples of them doing this, like, outside of the South? I know this is a um, Southern-focused show, but I was, I'm sure that they've done some other, I'm not sure, but I would assume that they would do, have done some other stuff elsewhere, too. Off the top of my head, well, first of all, definitely yes, and off the top of my head, the first example that comes to mind definitely. is um, there was a syphilis study, using oh. air quotes, yeah. You know what I'm talking about? I think it was called yeah. the Tuskegee it's the, study it's or the something. It's the father of, uh, quote-unquote, father of gene- gynecology. Is that who you're talking about? Where he performed experiments on uh, specifically black women who did not give their consent? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it was some racist-ass, fucked-up bullshit. Um, yeah, pretty horrible. It was a clinical, I just pulled it up on Wikipedia to make sure, like, in the interest of having accurate information. Oh, yeah, gotta get those sources. It's called the Tuskegee Study of Untreated Syphilis in the Negro Male, and it was a clinical study conducted between 1932 and 1972 by the United States Public Health Service. The purpose of the study was to observe the natural history of untreated syphilis. So what that means for me and you, Amy, and our audience is that they were intentionally infecting black men with syphilis and just letting it ride for like 40 years in this case and just seeing what would happen. 
Yeah, that's pretty messed up. I so, think we might yeah. be talking about two different things, unfortunately. There's, I know. I'm, I'm sure there's multiple examples of that sort of thing. That's just yeah. the first one that came to mind for me. As far as more modern stuff, I mean, that syphilis study ended in the early 70s. That's pretty recent. Yeah, this is two different speaking. things. I'm, I'm speaking about... Uh, something that was uh, an experiment that was the father of gynecology which is a guy named uh, J. Marion Sims he performed experiments on enslaved women Um, yeah and in like the yeah so anyway two different things both horrible um, yeah I haven't heard of that one that's fucked I'll send it to you. Like, it's something that... <laughs> Great, yeah. please. Yeah, thanks. I'll read yeah. that later tonight. <laughs> Great. I mean, it's, it's just really messed up um, that anybody would experiment on human beings um, without their consent, period. But especially the stuff that has long-lasting repercussions for general health and well-being. Um, but, that, you know, this guy at least wasn't with the government, I guess, if we're looking at a bright side. He's just a horrible person. But yeah, yeah, it is, I I agree with you, like there are definitely examples of other um, things being done in the name of science that are very unethical, which like thankfully now we have those standards. Um, I know like, you you know, you studied psychology, there are all these like crazy psychological experiments that were done on people before guidelines like that were put into place, which are really scary. Um, don't like that. Yeah, the milligram study is one of the famous examples of that. Yeah, um, what about that guy who, like, he had a baby and then he started putting a scary mask on and would make loud noises at the baby? What? Would just, have you seen that? It's, like, not funny. I don't mean to laugh, but it's just, like, so outrageous that someone would experiment on their own own child. I'll, I'll send that to you, too, because it was something that <laughs> stuck with me. I, I learned about it in, like, Psych 101 kind of class. Yeah. Uh, and I was just so appalled that someone would do that but yeah it, like thankfully things are in place now where hopefully that's not happening um anyway i guess yeah man people are fucking crazy i think there's a lot of just pointless research that gets done for like no real reason let alone just like creeps like that putting on like yeah. masks and like fucking with their kids and i don't know that's horrible it is horrible um it's i don't know it's a it's definitely upsetting these are heavy things to weigh on but i as always you know i think it's good that we have these conversations man and that we talk about this stuff and you know have a conversation about it but thank you so much for joining me on this great installment this was episode 30 of down home fear and hopefully it didn't give you more anxiety about uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, hopefully it showed you that yellow fever has a higher mortality rate than coronavirus. I don't know. Something, is that the silver lining of this? Something else to worry about, I guess. Yeah, it's definitely, definitely a strange time, but we'll we'll get through it one way or the other. Well, Amy, thank you so much for coming on. And, yeah, um, thanks for having me. Yeah, this is this is great, and we hope to have you back, maybe. Maybe to share some stories of your own. Yeah, did you? You were saying earlier to me that you uh, you had something in mind. I have. uh, I have two stories in mind, so I'll hold it and we can talk offline about it. uh, Okay. Because I know you in your Facebook group, which everybody should go and join if you're listening. Yeah, Down Home Fear Podcast is our Facebook group, and it is a private group. Only for the reason that I don't want random psychos coming in and like posting crazy shit. So if you just send it, just request to join it, I'll approve you. It's like, 
it's not a secret society of some kind. Join the secret society. But yeah, no, there, there was a poll in there um, about what kind of episodes people were interested in hearing. So I, I have one. There, I think the top voted one was like historical tragedy type stories. Yeah. Uh, so I have one that falls within that. And then I have something that's uh, a little bit more like on par with things that we've spoken about, like, you know, typical true crime murder stuff. So could go either way, folks. Yeah, we had historical tragedies and brutal murder were tied as number one. So for the last episode, I revisited, I, I don't know if you listened to that one. Yeah, uh, I did. Yeah, that was hardcore stuff. I mean, so yeah. episode 29, if you're looking for brutal murder, potentially episode 31 or 32 or whenever we're able to get you back on, we'll hear about more of these historical tragedies. But on that note, if you have any suggestions, if anyone has any suggestions for this show, please let me know. I had one of my uh, professors from Penn State actually reached out to me with a cool story idea. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. This uh, anthropologist dude who I uh, know over there. But yeah, anyway, so that, that'll that be fun. That'll be coming next time. We're not going to just do super dark stuff. So we do like to, we like to embrace those strange happenings just as much as we like to embrace the true crime elements of everything love it all right cool well this was episode 30 amy thank you so much and thank you so much audience for listening